In the Name of Overhead Athletics podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Hey, welcome back to In the Name of Overhead Athletics. I'm Max Wardell. Today, I have a very special guest. I'm joined by Dr. Ryan Croton. He's got a PhD in biomechanics and exercise physiology. He's worked as the director of performance integration for the Angels organization. He's a baseball researcher now at Louisiana Tech. He's got a plethora of certifications. He's a strength and conditioning coach and a number of other things. And currently, right now, he's actually come out recently with armcare.com. And we'll let him talk a little bit about that here in this podcast. So, Along with coaching and conducting research, he's also impacting players on a uh, personal level remotely through his application and website. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Max. I really love what you do. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm a fan of what you do as well, and that's kind of how we connected here. So we've talked briefly before, but tell me a little bit about armcare.com because I've seen some of the PR stuff you guys have put out and some of the videos you guys have put out, but I'm not too familiar on everything that's going on there. Yeah, we, we really are making a push to, to educate the masses about strength and utilizing strength measures to formulate specific programs for athletes. So what we had found, a lot of us who had been in baseball, is that the training was generally... Uh, distributed to athletes. So we had a lot of athletes doing very similar work. And the the arm care training in present, it's, it's just not as effective. So what we, you know, have come out with is a technology to test strength and range of motion. There's an IMU uh, unit in the dynamometer we use. And through that, we're able to evaluate things like relative strength, we're looking at their shoulder balance, so their external rotation to internal rotation strength ratios, we're looking at arm fatigue, so we're evaluating post-throwing strength. Um, we're looking at a competitive blended metric called the strength-velocity ratio, and um, we're looking at recovery scores, so we want to see how the arm comes back in a recovered state to evaluate what the athlete does during the periods between high-intensity throwing bouts, and then we have just started something called arm readiness, where we're intersecting both arm wellness data, so how the arm feels, and a very rapid test before throwing to be able to make determinations of where to change in your your throwing program. So there's a lot that's out there with this technology, and it's all aimed to improve performance and to minimize injury risk, but to give coaches the uh, ability to individualize, to give them that information. Yeah, I like that. What I've seen um, from your guys' stuff is that you initially started with something that's that was smaller. Hey, we're going to test a few things, and you've kind of added to it as it's uh, as it's gone along. Would that be correct? Yeah, yeah. We had to figure out, you know, how to make the technology very easy to understand. You know, we have some complex math in the background, but if we're looking at um, you know arm strength, arm fatigue, we're giving all these different terms that are very simple in an explanation. Um, we we needed to do this incrementally. So, you know, when we release something, we, we always want to have it with an education. So these are what we call the key performance metrics. Um, when we have new tests, we're, we're developing new tests that are more specific to the throwing athlete, whether it's in long lever positions or we're looking, you know, we just started a grip test 
that's between the index finger and the thumb, the baseball grip test. So yeah, we've had to go in stages because it's it's very new to our, our audience. It, it might not be obviously for uh, in a clinical setting, you know, in terms of how you utilize dynamometry, but we need to get to the coaches, the skill coaches, and a lot of research has pointed to the coaches feeling that they're responsible for player health in baseball. So we needed to uh, come up with a strategy that we're not overwhelming our community. And it is a little bit overwhelming because the data is very new. It's a new analytics uh, approach. So when you're, when you're doing this assessment, like you were saying, it's very new and you have athletes who are unfamiliar. I know there's an educational component that goes along with, here's how you make sure you do the test so there's not compensation, because that's something we always run into. Even when you're doing a test in person, some sort of strength test is the athlete's getting better at the test, maybe not better from a physiological standpoint or an actual strength standpoint. They're just better adapted to perform that test. So how do you go about educating athletes or, or really educating the coaches who are going to be using the application to make sure, hey, here's how we do these assessments so we make sure we get reliable? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So we're coming out with an arm care specialist course, and that's going to be available probably by the new year. Um, some people are getting some sneak peeks. I'd love to get you uh, an opportunity to have a sneak peek at, at the information. And, uh, you know, we have to go through the procedures you know, created videos that are on the app. Uh, we're educating coaches on what to look for. There's a lot of, you're right, there's a lot of things that could go wrong in the test because it's player-led. The, the goal is to be able to have the player do this routinely, you know, uh, very often in the location of their own home or wherever they're going to be, and the coach just picks up the data to look at it and make the interpretation so the coach doesn't have to be watching the athlete or taking them through. But we have a player onboarding video, so that's something we're putting together so the players understand. And we have some fail-safes embedded in the application. So, for instance, we have an active um, shoulder flexion test. So whenever the athlete has an increase in uh, beyond 10 degrees, we alert the coach to say, you know, ensure that the athlete did not have any compensations because what can happen is that the athletes are are going to be you know potentially arching their back um, the test is also done with the eyes closed so we we calibrate the device with the eyes closed and we do our tests with the eyes closed because what we don't want to do an active test is to have the athlete visualize where their arm is in space you know that can that can add compensations and we want them to inherently feel their first end range position so you know our our uh, idea was how can we get the athletes to do this on their own? You know, we know that there's there's going to be a lot more standardization doing passive testing, which we're going to be building out an opportunity to utilize the dynamometer for passive tests, um, where the athlete is being taken through and the scapula can be stabilized. But what we want to do is like, can we create the right smoke signal by getting the athletes in consistent positions uh, lower radiation, meaning, you know, we're doing grip, we're in a half kneeling position, we're not standing where the athlete can clinch, you know, their glutes and their quads and they can get a little bit more force. We're really trying to isolate it and make the test positions easier. And um, I think in future, when the athletes are onboarded, the coaches really understand our fail safes are in the app, 
we're going to get a lot more, much more consistent data. So far, we've done a really good job. Um, the dynamometer is is highly accurate up until 45 kilograms. So, you know, you're looking at over 100 pounds of force. We, we feel very confident for the throwing arm. If an athlete is getting that high a level, you know, if they're getting 100 pounds of force on the, sh the rotator cuff, they probably don't need our yeah. device, right? <laughs> they're, 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 they're definitely super strong. So we feel that, you know, even on that regard, um, the, the equipment is effective. Yeah, you've made it relatively affordable. Like, you could go out there as an athlete, and this is an awesome investment that's, that's not going to break the bank. And sometimes these technologies can be expensive. I mean, just from a, a curiosity standpoint, because somebody sent me this a long time ago um, and was like, hey, have you seen this? And I was like, no, but I wish I would have came up with the idea. So you've put together this package where an athlete can purchase this, uh, this arm care kind of system for himself and be able to complete it on his own. And it's at an affordable price point. How are you able to kind of combine all these things and get these moving parts together with the IMU integration and everything like that? Yeah, our, our biggest thing was was compliance. How do we how do we have a blend of science and compliance? We don't want the athletes to feel like a lab rat. We don't want it to be time consuming. And I think the major thing that that is the advantage obviously is the cost you know we're getting a pretty a pretty good dynamometer in the hands of everybody for a very affordable rate and the platform is subscription based and it's not you know really expensive for an individual user it's a uh, it's twelve dollars a month but if you're through a team it's it's uh much cheaper when there's more bulk and and there's so many options for people who want to use this but the thing is the compliance um, is the key and our testing for just doing one arm is no more than six minutes. So, you know, I can get it done in around three because I'm really familiar and I'm just clicking through and, and I, I think when athletes, you know, get to understand that they'll be able to do a single arm. The full arm test takes about 12, 12 minutes because you're doing both sides. Um, but you, you can also bring that down to eight, nine minutes when you get really used to it and you can flip over the dynamometer and easily transfer it to, uh, to both limbs. So, you know, for us, um, being able to make, uh, an effective technology that's very simple to use, we think there's going to just be a, a really high adoption. Uh, and we're trying to push it, man. Like our message, strength matters most. We say it constantly for um, for our audience because the the world is going into a little bit of a different direction. We're, we're, we're more focused on motion capture. And the thing that I like that, that you've been doing is that you are really focused on the anatomy. You're really focused on the, the strength capacities, you know, the stabilization, the synchronization of muscle firing, those kinds of things. That's where I think the world needs to focus a lot of attention right now. And, um, you know, this, this package of what we offer, I think, is going to support this movement that we're going to eventually say, hey, strength is going to lead us. And then we can look at all these other options, external workload tracking, biomechanics. And we just needed to make something very simple to use so it can be adopted. Do you think there's going to be a place for this in the clinical setting, the way you have it set up, or should clinicians wait for the next rendition? Because what I'm thinking is even with myself, 
based on what you're saying here and based on even what I've seen is that it's a really user-friendly option that, hey, I could just I could use that with my athletes in the clinical setting. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, we, we've, we've talked to numerous physical therapists, and, and there's a lot that are testing it out. And what we want to be able to see happen is that when, a, you know, a, a, a clinician is working with a throwing athlete, they can stay in tune with the athlete if they have a device. So, for instance, now there could be extra services that could be billed in terms of follow-up with the patient um, because now they can be, you can monitor their strength. Their dashboard's really easy to use. Whenever they test, you're, you're going to get notifications. You're going to be opening up our athlete management system. You can see where they're at. Um, when there, there's some prompts on there, we have alerts that are watch warning and medical. And anytime an athlete drops below 12 pounds of strength on a particular muscle, and if we're looking at total strength, um, when it's more than uh, 25 pounds total strength of all the muscle groups, there's a medical alert because we want to know, is there something neurologically wrong? Is it associated pain that's being masked? So there's a way in which I think there's continuity of care with, with clinicians. And I think for myself as a patient to know that I'm being monitored and to know that if I have a problem, I have this relationship with my physical therapist that I can go in. What we want to be able to protect against is, is revision surgeries. You know, if you have an athlete that's been surgically intervened, they've had a ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction, they go out and they're starting to show arm weakness and changes and imbalances. There needs to be some intervention because if they go through and they have a revision, the likelihood of returning to their level of performance is much lower. So I see this with, in the clinical setting to be very important um, for therapists, for athletic trainers, sports medicine doctors, you name it. My mentor, Ed Martell, when I came into this, and I was really just kind of with him, shadowing him, teching in the clinic, everything like that, his statement was, you'll never see an elbow injury, you'll never see a shoulder injury without associated rotator cuff weakness. He said, I've been in practice for 17 years, and I haven't seen it. It's just every time you see some deficit and weakness, whether it's, hey, subscapularis was never tested previously, and we've, we can identify some weakness there, whether it's external rotator suit, whatever it is, there's always some sort of associated weakness that's gone along with the injury or the pathological biomechanics in the throw, which kind of brings us to an interesting point, because I know you're familiar with Franz Bosch and some of the things they're doing over there with um, some of the motor learning interventions and that sort of thing. And, and a lot of times, I think, even talking to them, a lot of times people misconstrue, <clears throat> excuse me, um, they misconstrue that we're doing these things, you need these big global movements, and you got to train the movement with specificity, which is always important. But there is a component of isolated strength training. There is a component of isolated strength testing that's very important, especially when you're dealing with a throwing athlete who goes through thousands of degrees per second in shoulder internal rotation, places huge loads on their shoulder and their rotator cuff. We do need this component of isolated, and we do need this component of global training or, or global movement training and that sort of thing. So we're, I mean, how do we kind of make sense of, of the um, breakdown there? Because some people want to go so far in one direction, and obviously we've seen in the past with the bodybuilding style programs that were employed in colleges and high schools and everything like that for baseball players. We've seen the antithesis of that as well. Yeah. I mean, for our tests, you're right. They're, they're very, they're isolated. 
the, the thing is that there's there's standardized. We, we've developed this the test that we call X-cell and D-cell. It's our primer test that we do before throwing. And now we're starting to combine the transfer of strength through a long lever. We know that the highest forces in, in throwing are just after ball release. You're getting a, a high degree of compression force that's needed to keep the shoulder integrated because of how fast the arm's moving. The, the arm naturally wants to move out of the socket and the muscles have to bring it back in. And so what we want to do is say, okay, how can we get a little bit more of a transfer effect of if the, the core has got to be stabilized, I'm in a half kneeling position, I'm pushing into an immovable surface. We're starting to look at how can we combine some other forms of uh, integration of other muscles, some synergy. And you're right, um, we have to look at the global aspect as well. The thing that we're really focused on with our company right now is the distal chain. Because we do see that, you know, the training has to have coordination. I always think of, you know, strength and conditioning should be strength and coordination. You know, that that's that's what strength coaches, Absolutely. you know, performance coaches in the field, they they should be improving movement, you know, through their through their training. But what we're taking the stance is that okay, the the pitcher over the course of the game is probably gonna show some signs of compensation. There's gonna be things that happen, fatigue related. Um, small changes in, the, in their delivery that their bandwidth of variability gets increased and that we want to make sure these individual muscle contributions are, are strong for the arm. They can handle any kind of compensation in the body that may put the arm in an extra leg position, um, you know, more mechanically disadvantaged and more of a bending moment on their elbow. So they're, we're thinking of all that. But I don't think, just like what you're saying, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The, the isolated training has its place. The isolated monitoring has its place because it's it's pretty repeatable. It's easy to do and, and, and be standardized. But we cannot figure, you know, we cannot move around having good global movement patterns and, uh, you know, being able to apply them to, you know, rotation where there's a huge amount of energy transfer. And we know that the proximal chain, if there's a problem there, it is going to add stress to the distal chain. So we have to, we have to marry, you know, both worlds and people, you know, talk about strength, you know, strength is applied in so many different positions. You could be strong in certain areas that I'm not. So, you know, that's a, that's a limitation of strength monitoring in general, producing the right tests. Now, people who have more access to, to greater technology, force plates, you know, they might have lower body dynamometry that they can use it as a fixed surface they're going to be an advantage because they're looking at strength in multiple lenses. Um, but for the masses, you know, we are focused on, you know, what does the arm show us? It's absolutely the low hanging fruit too. If you really think about it, it's one of the easiest things to improve with just a little bit of commitment, a little bit of time. And it's often the thing that's never addressed, which is, are you strong in positions that your arm's going to go through in the throw? And then, Really, like, are these muscles that are going to control the humeral head and the socket, are they strong enough to endure the loads of the throw? Are they strong enough to endure these peak stresses and do that for 50 repetitions? Interestingly, I, I had an athlete recently who I'd been working with on his throw here and there for a period of time, and I've been telling him, hey, we need something a little bit more focused. We need something a little more specific. 
I wanted him to do physical therapy. I couldn't get him there multiple days a week, and I couldn't get him to do a, a home program with any sort of, I guess, uh, um, diligence, like just couldn't stick to the home program. So it took finally the athlete had a minor sprain of his elbow for him to actually commit to doing in-person physical therapy. And maybe part of it is, hey, if this athlete has something that they can do be consistent with and actually visualize like their improvement that's a big component it's like a lot of times athletes will go through these things and my programs included it's like i can't actually see whether i'm improving or not and that's one of the great things about having a dynamometer and an imu device where you can actually measure joint position and that sort of thing where you can actually see and track your progress that's that's a huge component that's often overlooked and it can provide the individual with motivation just like the individual losing weight they don't see the scale turning or their waistline dropping right away, then they start to fall off. But if they can see, oh, there's two pounds less on the scale, I better keep going. You know, I'm actually getting some. Yeah, I mean, on the app, we have right front facing, we have the arm score, and it offers like a credit score about your strength. It's essentially the, the relative, the total relative strength that the athlete can achieve, but it's in a point scale. So we want to see the athlete for total arm strength to be over 70 or over 70% of their body weight when you add all the muscle contributions. And we want to gamify that. You know, we have leaderboards, we have PRs, and I think it's important. I mean, it's easy to get excited about, you know, a max squat or a max bench. You know, athletes get excited about them because they are tested. And they're tested in college and people care about them. And you know, the bench is an NFL combine test. I mean, guys get excited about this, but we, we have to create a culture that we build energy and a vibe around improving arm strength. When an athlete's like, man, I'm, you know, I'm ranked too. I mean, we rank them, we percentile rank them. It's like, I'm in the, you know, I'm a high school guy and I'm in the 90th percentile of pros. Like that, that's, you know, we want to be motivating like that. And the other thing that we believe in our programs is that, the arm care should be first. We should we should put that up front. We should prioritize it. In a lot of programs, the arm care is generally at the end and it's considered a finisher. So by that time, the athlete's kind of exhausted from their workout, especially if it's a really high intensity workout, and they might not go through it with the same energy, the same focus that they would if they had this at the beginning. So there's some things about the prioritization of the training, getting getting to that part early, teaching the athlete that this matters. We need to make this a priority first before you get into your you know, general strength and conditioning program. And uh, in having a culture around uh, the rewards, the intrinsic rewards of an athlete improving strength. You know, your rotator cuff balance, your shoulder balance is now you know, 0.9, you're at 0.7. So your external rotators, you're almost getting close to one to one. Like that's awesome. We gotta we gotta beef that up. We gotta get the athlete excited about these aspects because they have a great transfer to health, you know, and and performance. So you know, we're looking to improve health, velocity, and command. Those are our three cornerstones. We call it the performance pyramid. We're trying to improve those things, and I believe. Like what you said with the athlete that you mentioned that he wasn't diligent um, and, you know, they need a motivator. Athletes need visual feedback. You know, people like that. People like to compete. Athletes are naturally competitive. 
and they got to compete with themselves and we need to give them data. Baseball is a world of data. And uh, this is just another layer to get the athletes' uh, juices flowing for, for training. Yeah, that's cool. As far as the rotator cuff ratio or the IR to ER ratio, you guys are looking for a one-to-one there. What's your option? So, so the range, we don't want us to get a huge spread. So we want to see 0.8 to 105. So in my previous experience working with athletes, generally the rotator cuff strain guys would be having less ER. They would be below 0.8, but we wanted to be, we wanted to bump that up. We wanted to be a little more conservative and say, we want to get you at 0.85. The guys that had elbow problems and slap issues. They had a reversed ratio so that they had a, they had a ER ratio that were above 1.1. So, you know, that means their deceleration for their layback is not as strong, right? So when we lay back our arm, the internal rotators, they centrically contract to control the speed of the arm and to be able to get it to its isometric position and layback. And when that's weak, the bicep for a slap tear, it becomes more of a, of a stabilizer external rotation. And we're putting traction on the bicep and the peel back mechanism for the slap tear, that risk increases. So we want to be able to assist that uh, stability in, in going into layback. The other thing is the forearm acceleration. That's what a valgus stress is. It's essentially the forearm acceleration going backwards that opens up the medial elbow joint and it gets worse when the humerus rolls forward and the forearm's still going backward. There's an instant where you have that internal rotation, then you have your varus torque closing the medial elbow. And we wanna ensure that when we're mitigating, we need to mitigate the speeds. If there's an athlete that may have poor arm positioning at foot contact, but they have a very rapid rate of external rotation, we need to manage that with internal rotation torque. So I've seen a lot with um, the guys that have very weak internal rotators comparatively having those problems. And this is where it goes hand in hand with your kinematic training, I want to get into some of the kinematics a little bit here because we're working on the strength of the internal rotator so they can better eccentrically control as somebody slams back into external rotation. But then you're also considering where did they start. So you have somebody like Mark Pryor or how Steven Strasberg used to throw where they're in a ton of internal rotation and they're slamming back super hard into external rotation and they're basically summating that torque at the elbow. So you're combining... You know, in a perfect world, you're going to say, okay, we have these athletes under our control. We're going to manage how they go into external rotation in the throw as well as how well they're able to control that motion with the internal rotators. Yeah, yeah, kinematically. So in my mind, when it comes to biomechanics, I think, you know, two two of the risks are arm position at foot contact and uh, also the opening of the trunk. At foot contact so athletes that um are beyond so if my if my shoulder is um you know i'm perpendicular with the home plate so at foot contact if my if my uh throwing shoulder starts to open so now i'm not closed so if athletes don't have a you know a degree of being closed usually the gr- the really good athletes are closed by about 10 degrees you know some of them more at foot contact, they're able to really create that separation and keep it closed. 
It gives time for the arm. So even guys that have, I mean, good timing, we know there's so many pitchers that have had Tommy John surgery. We know they can't all be in an inverted W position. There's a lot of healthy guys, you know, guys that have great deliveries. This is why biomechanics is not on my mind more than strength, that there's a lot of guys with great mechanics that we think that end up on the injured list. But I think those two attributes is, is the relationship, somewhere in the relationship between the arm timing, the layback speed, um, and uh, the arm position and, and the opening of the trunk are really important to kind of get our head around in the biomechanic world. And if we see this, if it's a difficult kinematic component to change with our athletes, whether we're improving mobility around the proximal section, we're giving them drills to feel what's what it's like to stabilize the trunk as the pelvis moves, we're having issues with those athletes. We need to take that biomechanical data and say, hey, this guy's arm care program has to be focused on this. You know, if the if the athlete see if you see an athlete that their their valgus loading goes up, you know, you're using some of these biomechanical tools or you have access to them or you know, they go for a screen and you know, the data comes to you, Max, and you're looking at this and like, hey, your your valgus torque has gone up by, you know, ten newton meters. So you look mechanically and you see what's changed, but then it's you know, we have to adjust our, our arm care program. This isn't happening. The, these worlds sometimes are not connecting. The medical world, the strength world, and the sports scientists that are looking at biomechanics, sometimes they're not connecting because th this is the, you know, this would be the arm care program that, you know, an organization or team wants to follow. And here's the biomechanics and, you know, here's the normative ranges that the athletes should be in. They're not carrying over for the individual at times where it's like we see a change in X in this particular, you know, kinetic property. What What's going to be the mechanics that we might be the low dangling fruit to lower the loads for the athlete and maintain velocity, but what's going to be the arm care? I think really we got to shift to the arm care has got to change. You know, it needs more, you know, grip stabilization. We need to make sure his internal rotator strength is good. Um, we have to go through that checklist. We need to make sure the rotator cuff in general is strong. Like these are things that we we need to intersect. Um, but I, I do believe for people who are into biomechanics, uh, kinematic sequence is really important to be able to focus on. And how does that relate with the arm, the speed of how the arm's moving from from uh, the the point of foot contact into maximal external rotation? Those rates. You know, you can even look at acceleration. Not a lot of people have looked at acceleration data. We've taken in velocity as a, a good enough measure, but looking at the rate of change in velocity in the arm could be really telling for an athlete who may be at risk, and we need to ensure our training matches that. You know, one of the issues that I've had is, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of arm care training programs. I've done them myself. And the loading, the activation is a lot lower. You know, the weights are sometimes under five pounds for an adult male who's 225 pounds and, you know, has been collegiately trained for four years coming into our organization. And, and they've done similar things in college. And I don't think we're giving the athlete enough strength to manage these high loads their arm is accelerating so much 
you know, and we need to do whatever we can do to activate muscles. We need to be able to get them to take out slack, to stabilize them. They have to be, they, we have to create stiffness at certain instances in the delivery. Um, and, you know, a lot of programs might not be accomplishing that. They may be good for metabolic fatigue and improving the potential of how an athlete is able to generate energy in a particular muscle group. But when it comes to strength and power, these things I don't think can be accomplished with light load. So, you know, that's kind of my take on it. I, I'm really interested in the blend. I think we all got to get there is how do we blend biomechanics and strength? And how do we let, how do we let strength lead us? Before we start making changes in mechanics, and, and particularly maybe arm path changes, how can we ensure that the first thing that we do is we drive up the strength component? Because if you're making arm path changes, I've seen a lot, I've been experiencing a lot in my professional career. We change an athlete the way they've thrown in season, and they end up being injured because the fatigue is different. The arm position, the coordination is different, and especially they have to kick it in the high gear because they're trying to do this in games and they may be consciously thinking about where their arm is in 3d space and it affects the way that the arms loaded. So, you know, for me, it's like, let's look at strength first. Let's focus on that. If that, if there's deficiencies there, let's get those going. And once they're in a good place, strength wise, it's like, now I have some uh, confidence that whatever I'm going to ask the athlete to do, especially, in this high moving segment, I have a little bit more, um, I have a little bit more confidence that they're not going to wind up having an injury or they'll be able to sustain these positions or speeds that may have changed. I like what you're saying there. It's interesting from my perspective, because I do so much of the latter, which is changing throwing mechanics. There's always the combination of either formal physical therapy or exercise interventions, but I do so much of the biomechanics training. And there's there's some things that like I've found are so difficult to prepare that athlete to when you change. Like if somebody's been really long with their arm action and you bring them in and you have them flex, inevitably they're going to have more tricep load in the throw because they're almost an extension the entire throw traditionally. They're going to have that eccentric loading as they you know start to rotate around their body towards the target and i know like some of these guys i'm looking at them it's like we can train your tricep but it's not going to be the same loading as what you encounter in the throw so there's definitely some things like that that i see it's like your tricep it's so hard to replicate that loading and you can do you know plyometric throws with the gel ball and everything like that but then there's other things where it's like you can absolutely make a substantial change for instance, infraspinatus teres minor, the external rotators, having somebody train those because they're weak or, like you're saying, the internal rotators um, and finding maybe serratus or, uh, you know, periscapular weakness, those things you can, you can absolutely train prior to making some sort of uh, large or significant change to the way that somebody throws. Um, so it's, it's interesting. And that brings up like the topic of how do the muscles contract in the throw? And I've read, I've read, uh, Franz Bosch's, uh, strength training coordination book, like multiple times when I go through, when I go through the book, there's, and even in the next book, I'm trying to think of the name of it right now, but 
when you go through those, and this isn't a knock on it at all, it's, it talks about, okay, movements are going to be this. It really focuses on, you know, the isometric elastic action. And I think there's that that talk. And even if you look at Randy Sullivan and I talked to um, um, Martin Nyoff from uh, Dutch Baseball, there's there's a lot of, and I don't even know how you figure it out, but there's a lot of thought on, okay, is the muscle contracting, you know, in a stretch shortening cycle with eccentric to concentric, or is it the isometric elastic action where just the tendinous structures and fascial structures are lengthening? My, my thought is, and I'm curious because I wanted to ask you this, my thought is that maybe latissimus dorsi and some of these muscles like that in the upper extremity are, are utilizing that isometric elastic action where my suspicion is when you look at subscapularis or some of these fan-shaped muscles, potentially even pec, although we know it's not used as much in our, you know, elite level throwers as some of our amateurs use it. My suspicion is they use more of the stretch shortening cycle from an eccentric to concentric action just because of short tendinous structures and that sort of thing. Yeah. I had to ask you this Yeah, so there's a, lot, there's a lot there. One, you have tremendous uh, – you know, you have the art to the science. So you're, you basically could take what our application does and pump it into overdrive because you're looking for all these other determinants, serratus, anterior weakness, like things that affect strength um, for the rotator cuff. I mean, there's been a lot of studies to show that the arm adducted to 90 degrees and even higher for whenever you get into higher degrees of elevation, external rotation strength stays the same but the uh, activation of the serratus increases. The serratus assists these things. So you're doing a lot of a hunt around that, making sure everything's strong. So that's huge. That's, an, that's a key component. But, you know, when I think of athletes, I think some are um, muscle-driven and some are fascial-driven. There's some that use much more of a stretch than they do um, strength. But you know, looking at the biomechanical data, you see that there's instance of isometrics in 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 the pattern. So if you look at a curve, uh, an external rotation curve, I just put out an arm care IQ to talk about it and, and giving some training examples um, to improve isometrics in those positions. But when you get to the top of the bubble, so you see this rise in the joint angle, you get to this top where it's it's kind of flat. You know, it's on the it's just on the top. So you're looking at the slope of that line to see velocities, right? A change in displacement, a change in distance um, as a rate is velocity. And so at the top, when you get to the peak external rotation, you can't create any velocity. It's at zero velocity. So biomechanically, that's an isometric position. And what I think is when athletes have better isometric control, I believe they could amortize or make the transition from external or from eccentric loading to concentric loading better. Um, and, and, you know, potentially athletes that are holding the external rotation longer potentially could be developing a lot more tension and be, they may be more muscle driven. Their pecs may be more integrated in their throwing because it, they may be working more on uh, horizontal adduction while the arm is in a more isometric position. The pecs have been stretched, and that's moving quickly. The athletes might have more quicker instance. They, their curve might 
have more of a sharp uh, uh, position to it. They they don't they they don't have a more gradual effect. Those athletes might have a faster um, external to internal rotation mechanism, and they could be more elastic driven athletes. That where I don't understand in as it looks at you know that that critical incident in throwing and how to load the arm plyometrically. What I don't understand is what happens if you take a muscle-driven athlete that uses a lot of their proximal muscles to throw and you make them more elastic and vice versa. You take an elastic athlete and you try to make them more muscle-driven in their delivery, you know, what happens? So, you know, there there's a lot, there's a lot there, but I do believe being able to um, support the transitions in the throwing delivery is important. It's the same thing. When we when we're in ball release, our ball release isn't doing this as we're throwing. There's a point in ball release where there is a there is a slight instant of an isometric position at ball release, and then we start to move, you know, into other positions. So in in shoulder abduction, so there's all these different isometric instances in the delivery, and they're 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 they're, they're when you look at the top of these curves. That's isometric. You can't create a slope that's zero to zero velocity. So I think there is a place for that. And I, I know we're we're kind of maybe getting a little off topic about training, but we need to give eccentric training um, as much as we can to our athletes in the throwing arm as well to build strength but fascicle length. Because even if we have an athlete that may have a longer isometric period in their throwing, they get to that peak and it might be extended for you know, milliseconds more than another athlete, we need to be able to create arm speed out of that, especially the, the strength-driven athletes. We, we, we need them to be able to produce arm speed and the fascicle length improvements from eccentric training are important. And we don't have a ton of that in our daily arm care training. I always think that that's an interesting thing is that athletes that go through rehabilitation, they do eccentrics out of the wazoo. But then once they get into regular competition, they go away from it for maybe the fear of being sore or what have you. But we need to feed the arm what it experiences in some degree biomechanically. It's very hard to do unless you're throwing a weighted ball. But when you're throwing a weighted ball, you're letting go of the ball. And generally, you know, unless you're doing holes, you're not developing strength. So the combination of all those those things, um, you know, we need to look at to, to blend the, the biomechanics, the isometric or eccentric driven training, and in having high level motor performance. Talking about the holds that you just brought up there, it's an interesting topic because I I see so many injured athletes that a lot of times, and maybe you know that's that's a great thought too as well, which is. What happens when you take somebody who's more, quote-unquote, muscle-driven and you change them to become more elastic or vice versa? And dealing with so many injured athletes, a lot of times the athletes who have failed multiple bouts of rehabilitation or they've had two surgeries and at this point it's like they're, they're last-ditch thing. I, that's what I end up seeing often. And so when you have those athletes, there's very little room for error. A surgeon wants to put four anchors in their labrum, but they can throw in a certain way without pain. Maybe that's drastically different from the way they threw before, but it's to offload 
that structure maybe reduce shear load in a certain direction and, and kind of deflect it into another direction. With those athletes, I know that a lot of time that's a great way to put it. You're changing them from that more muscle-driven uh, athlete who uses more horizontal adduction in the throw, and now you're you're kind of limiting that because of the shear stresses back and forth. So I'm kind of, I guess, without even knowing it, I'm doing that all the time just because we don't have another option. But when we look at um, when we when we look at say kinematics of, of an athlete and maybe we see these cert, these certain markers that we want to see in a different way or like they're not exactly where we uh, would like them to be. Your thought is, hey, first let's work on some of these strength components and then over time we start to integrate maybe some more movement movement alteration strategies. And I, and I think it is important to note, it's like how do you – go about making that change is always the, the big, uh, the big one in my mind. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, the first thing, I guess I didn't explain very well what, in my opinion of, you know, an athlete, it's very elastic. So I think they have a very sharp rise in external rotation. They have a lot more range when you're looking at that biomechanics. And obviously from a clinical setting, you can find an athlete that's really lax, um, from your passive tests for sure. And uh, even in active tests, you'll see athletes that have a greater amount of range. And uh, even when you're watching the throw, they have a lot of um, horizontal abduction. So their arm legs a lot behind them. You know, they're, they're trying to develop a lot more stretch. And, uh, and so those things uh, we need to, to keep in mind when we're, we're making our change because um, we, if we're focused on generating a lot of strength, for these athletes and we're developing we developing a little bit more stiffness we have to continually look at length as well so one of the things i didn't talk about is the length and strength relationship we need to find optimums there you know you can find athletes that throw at high velocities with so much like completely different anatomy the arthrokinematics are different i've seen a lot of guys i haven't seen range of motion in professionals really um, predict ball velocity which is different than, you know, some research that has been seen in youth athletes, you know. So, um, but what I think is we need to have this blend of looking at range of motion and strength. So, for example, if you have a, an athlete who has a lot of laxity, they have a lot of external rotation or they're gaining external rotation, my mind is that they need to have eccentric strength of their internal rotator cuff. They need to be able to have that to manage this added layback. It needs to be supported. We need to get them to a safe um, isometric position. You know, maybe the instance a little bit longer that they're not creating a lot more of a bending on their arm. So we got to constantly look at all these features to give them the right, the right training. And I didn't mention that before. You know, we've talked a lot of strength, but we also need to evaluate their range of motion. And what happens too in, in weighted ball training is that the, um, a lot of the evidence has shown that there's not a strength improvement with weighted balls unless they're holds. If they're doing holds, that, that happens. Um, but we do know there's definitely a length change. So um, there was one study that was done a little while ago that actually had injured athletes in the study. They got injured. 
doing the study, which I've never seen before. I've never ever read a study that, you know, had indicated there was an injury in the study, um, but there were two of them that had um, pretty severe injuries. And I think what happened there is that the relationship, the athlete became more elastic. So their elasticity had gone up, they're, they're getting greater range of motion, their arm can crank back more. But the control group who didn't use the weighted ball, which was interesting, their strength improved, their shoulder strength improved, and that was statistically significant. But the weighted ball group, there was no change in strength from pre to post intervention. So what concerns me is that if we're not evaluating athletes, we're not doing this, we're taking athletes, we're categorizing as, is this a really uh, strength-driven athlete, doesn't have a lot of mobility, you know, kind of lax, or not lax, versus a lax athlete, and, you know, both of them may be having gains, we need to figure out where is strength at to, to match these changes. I think there's always a dance between uh, mobility and stability. And when pendulum swing, you know, too far in one direction or another, you know, exposes the athlete to risk. It, it does. Absolutely. Interesting point there, which is I was going to go into this before and then I lost my train of thought. The holds is something that's implemented in some of the weighted ball programs. And they have sh shown that rotator cuff strength and some other metrics may change and improve a little bit with the holds, but the holds maybe not as specific as everybody once thought to the throwing motion because you don't go through the same amount of external rotation and maybe the arm path is slightly different in other things. And we've seen the development of the throwing sock that they use at the Florida baseball ranch and that sort of thing, which is going to increase the distractive load there at the end of the throw when you release the release the ball and i think the theory there is okay if we put the ball in, in the hand and then release the ball increase distractive load but maybe there's a um, reflexive or preflexive contraction of the rotator cuff before that to make the rotator cuff actually contract harder and i don't know if that's necessarily true or not we'd have to see some emg um, studies on it but what what are your thoughts on the holds and the the throwing sock. I, you know what, personally, I love them. Um, I don't view holds as a real throwing specific activity where other people might think like they're utilizing it to improve the throwing pattern. They're not biomechanically similar. You know, you're, you're, you're thinking at the instant of ball release, your mind is saying, I'm not releasing the ball. It definitely changes the position when you look at the uh, the biomechanics, it, it has more of a pushy delivery. Some athletes, mm -hmm. even you know, even with weighted balls, if the the ball's too heavy, you know, they're doing a heavy weighted ball hold. They might muscle guard. They might not have layback that much at all. You know, I look at it as a strength activity, and we can't simulate. You know, I talked about you know the training and simulating training um, to throwing. We can't simulate that kind of force. My impression is that this kind of force where you're actually throwing an implement, but you're not letting it go and you're, you're, you're trying to decelerate it is so much greater than anything we can do in the weight room for the throwing arm because it's moving at a higher speed. Um, and you know, we know that if the mass is being accelerated at uh, a higher speed, it's going to have greater kinetic energy. 
you know, that, that's the equation of half mv squared. So whatever the mass is, if the velocity keeps increasing, it's it's doubled. So, you know, you're, you're doing that at high velocity. So the torque levels are high. It's conditioning the athlete. And I've seen, um, in my experience, in evaluating weighted ball training with, with holds involved, the, the strength improvements happen in a shorter period of time, within 14 days. So sometimes we would take athletes who had had muscular imbalances, especially, you know, some of our key prospects that we were worried about injuries, and they would have a diet of this in their program, and, and it would change the loading based on what they needed. Um, for athletes that um, had weak internal rotator cuff strength, the weighted ball holds would be would be heavier. They'd actually have to generate more force in the holds into internal rotation. Um, for athletes that had very weak external rotation, they'd be lighter. We're increasing the accelerative properties that the posterior cuff has to decelerate. So we would make some of those adjustments with our weighted ball holds um, in the program, and we, we had a lot of success there. You know, we had a lot of success there. I mean, I got kind of turned on to them from um, watching Steve Delabar. I actually met Steve Delabar mm -hmm. uh, when I was with the Orioles, and I was I was really, like, just excited to talk to him because watching his video, and, you know, for those who don't know Steve Delabar, you can see some stuff on YouTube. It shows an actual x-ray of his arm, and it looked like a bomb went off in his elbow. Major soft tissue damage. You know, bones had to be screwed. Like, like it was just it, horrible looking. You know, to, to yeah, see, it was. Yeah, to see somebody come that. back from that, I was so intrigued. And he was saying that you know a lot of his work came from weighted ball holds, which really stemmed from Tom House, who studied tennis players and wondered, you know, why are tennis players rotator cuffs so strong? Um, and realized, you know, intuitively they're not letting go of a racket. This heavier point mass is moving at a higher velocity and it's not discharging from the arm. It's it's being held through the deceleration. Um, and so, you know, we, we saw some really great strength improvements, but it has to be tailored to the athlete. In any event, um, we, we saw that there was an increase in ER for, for ER strength for a lot of players. And it worked really well for athletes that had, you know, a typical ratio that was less than 0.8. But what we needed to see, and, and that was kind of a concern for me, is the sustainable strength after weighted ball programs and sustainable velocity. So it was not unusual in some cases to see a guy, you know, come out of a weighted ball program and for the first month or two, they're doing really well, and then they start sliding. And I believe, you know, what we're, what's happening in, in, in season, we didn't have the greatest monitoring process of strength is that their performance is elastic driven, you know, from, from, right. from the range of motion improvement, you know, they're, they're basically able to crank the, the catapult back, you know, just, just a little bit more that's giving them a little bit more of a stretch, but then they may be losing the strength to maintain the arm speed going on in season. And, uh, you know, teams are able to now use biomechanical equipment. I mean, you could use, you know, the pulse sleeve, um, it's really good for arm speed. So you could utilize that, that sleeve to, you know, really notate is, is arm speed going down with, with strength. So my, like intuitively, I would think that, um, 
as internal rotator cuff strength goes down, the arm speed goes down. However, you might see in some cases that there are decelerators, and that would be a good study to see is the decelerators, the, the external rotator cuff, if it goes down, is that more related to arm speed changes? But something in there, in my impression, is going to be a strength problem, not a length problem. And I think holds help for that. I'm even thinking about, and like I said, a lot of times I'm dealing with athletes where I don't necessarily, we don't necessarily have a lot of options. They're kind of at the point where there's significant, there's significant damage inside the joint. There's significant labral damage. Surgery's not really an option for them at this point. And we have to get them pain-free. We have to get them back to performing. And I'm thinking about, you have that individual or even a, a healthy individual that wants to improve their throwing mechanics that their arm lags behind and they're quote unquote more elastic in the throw. But a lot of times they're also relying not just on muscular stretch, but on, you know, passive structures to like their anterior shoulder capsule to, to hold their, their humeral head inside the socket with those athletes. The way the way I'm thinking right now is, hey, implement some of these holds with a heavier ball, which forces them to actually get their elbow further out in front and maybe also approximate and bring the ball in closer to their head as well. Um, even though, hey, they're not, it's not going to be as specific as, as throwing or whatever else, it may be better because that they're actually going to be forced to limit some of their external rotation range of motion and they can't drag their arm so far back. So you're using an implicit learning strategy there. And I, I've, I've played around and I, I do really like the throwing socks because it does teach athletes to decelerate their arm a little bit better. And I've actually, interestingly enough, my theory was if you have an athlete with a slap tear or uh, labral fraying or rotator cuff um, pathology, when you throw this on, it's going to, it's going to make their pain worse. And what's interesting is I think it works better in those athletes and actually makes them feel a little bit better compared to the athletes who are even healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think there's a psychological muscle guarding that, that you, you know, yeah. you're not letting it go. So there's, there's something in there that, I mean, it'd be cool to see a study too, an EMG study, the differences between weighted balls um, being let go versus the holds to actually see how the recruitment pattern, like how early these things might co-contract, you know, the timing of them. Um, obviously the isometric period for weighted ball holds is going to be a lot longer because there's probably going to be guarding. And uh, yeah, I, I think for those kind of hyper mobile athletes, it's a, it's a good option. You know, they're stabilizing the joint, they're co-contracting. It's probably centered a lot longer. And, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'd be super excited to be able to, uh, you know, evaluate this in my research world um, because I, I do think there is a, a huge benefit there, maybe with these hyperelastic athletes. And the thing is, in our weighted ball programs, if there's some involvement of this, maybe we get the velocity improvement without such a huge length uh, aspect where, where, you know, the range of motion might be more stabilized. You know, I thought about that too. It's like and maybe they don't lose the speed in the middle of the, you know, in the middle of the year, or, you know, after two months after they stop kind of the intensive right. weighted ball program, right. which is what we see all the time. I, it's like I was throwing 89 this winter and now I'm throwing 
you know, 84 or 85. And it's like, you're, yeah, but you're not doing the same training program. Right, anymore. right. We have a ratio called the strength velocity ratio. And it's basically the total arm strength to the maximum speed. So we use, we use this as a barometer for the quality of a weighted ball program, but also the eligibility of a weighted ball program. You know, basically, if the athlete throws 93 miles an hour, but their ratio of strength is less than 1.6, that means their strength isn't 60% more in pounds versus miles per hour. We don't really recommend a weighted ball program because what can happen if the program isn't very good in training is that the, the ratio keeps plummeting. They keep gaining velocity and they're already throwing a high velocity, but their strength is down. And we know from biomechanics that an increase in one miles per hour of, of speed can increase the load on the arm by, by one unit, one Newton meter. It's, it's pretty close. And so we need to ensure that strength is matched. And I think, you know, in integrating the weighted ball holds manages the layback. It's probably one of the risk factors, the layback without the strength because you're boosting strength and probably keeps maintaining or improving that strength velocity ratio to be above 1.6. So, you know, I, I see that in the future of, you know, really testing how can we make our weighted ball programs effective to improve strength, not just range of motion, in the quest of improving arm speed and velocity. And and with the strength, uh, the strength number you're using, what uh, like what metric is this kind of a cumulative? Yeah. Strength or yeah. So we we thought of so how do we make this easy for our audience to understand whether strength is improving relative to velocity? And so we say, well, if we look at each isolated muscle group. It's, it's not going to be as easy or as intuitive because the, it, it's going to be more of a, a decimal number, you know, because the strength isn't that high. You think of an athlete throws 90 miles an hour, but their external rotation strength is 45 uh, pounds. You're getting a decimal all the time to think about it. We want to we try to get our athletes into whole numbers. Um, you know, so what we've done is we're evaluating all the muscle contributions, internal rotation strength, external rotation strength, scaction strength, grip strength. We're adding them all together to come up with a summative total strength measure. A lot of athletes, what we want to get them to for absolute strength, not relative strength, but absolute strength, we want to get them to about 100 pounds. Um, that's a goal, you know, and relative strength, like I said, is 70% body, uh, body weight and, um, Absolute strength, just so I explain that a little bit better for the listeners, is it's better for performance. So in sports science, at least my experience, absolute measures are so much better for performance, but for health, the relative loading that, you know, in relation to the body, you know, relative squat strength, relative bench strength, you know, relative strength for um, rotator cuff strength is much better for health because it's related to the athlete's body size. How strong are you relative to your body? And so we use the absolute for this strength measure. So um, it, it's, I think it's going to be a game changing metric for people. And it's one that we got to, you know, we got to educate. We got to get people to wrap their heads around this. And we're now, we're now blending competition measures and physiologic measures together to, to help guide us. You know, consequently, I know I talked about the athlete that might not be eligible for a, a weighted ball program because they have such high velocity and they're so weak. You might find the other side of things where the athlete is super strong. Their ratio is so high 
because their velocity is so low that you could say, okay, their strength relative to their velocity, their their you know what their arm speed might be or their arm acceleration might be, they need this program. You know, they need this program to to improve, and they're 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 you got a better chance of success with it because they're very strong. So it's it's going to be, I think, a real groundbreaking metric. And a lot of the weighted ball programs that are going on right now, I don't know if they're analyzing players. You know, I don't, I, I don't yeah. know, I don't know if they're they're monitoring, you know, strength and range of motion and you know all these things. And sometimes the weighted ball programs are not observed by a coach, which concerns me. I talk to a lot of athletes, um, you know, just on the youth level, twelve to fifteen years old. They would much rather pay for a weighted ball program online than they would a strength program online. You know, and even having general yeah. strength and conditioning, they may not have. And that freaks me out, man, because they're doing they're doing the highest intensity training. You cannot do anything more intense force wise than throwing. It, you just can't accelerate the body like that. You know, throwing has the highest amount of forces on the joints. You know, everything else, even with, you know, you're loading the body and people worry about injuries, there are millions more uh, throwing injuries than weight room injuries, you know, because the accelerations are so low in the weight room. But I now get concerned that, you know, kids are gravitating. They're seeing, yeah, there is a, ben a velocity benefit. There is. I mean, this is, this is true. There's a velocity benefit, but there's costs associated with it. And obviously getting the, the most... Uh, out of your program in future if we don't have a strength assessment. So we need these hinging metrics for our training programs and working with our athletes, I think, in the future. Absolutely. I look at this in maybe a, a light that's different than the average athlete. Having been – I did a weighted ball program as an athlete. I ended up getting injured because I didn't know what I know now, and I didn't have somebody that – I guess was um, that had enough knowledge on maybe the biomechanics and the strength component and these other things that was taking me through the program. And I don't know if I would have got injured or not if had that happened. You know, I who knows? You can never predict uh, an, an injury exactly like that. But I think with these guys, my thought is always, all right, if you just took this program Here's the weighted ball program in a group of guys, and you said, all right, how many guys are going to improve their velocity and stay healthy? How many guys are going to improve their velocity for a short period of time and get injured? How many guys are going to stagnate and not improve in their velocity at all? And then how many guys are going to get injured pretty quickly? Um, I don't know what those statistics are, but I can say that in my experience, if you haven't started to address some of the other components uh, that – can lead to a higher velocity before you just implement something like this. I think you're going to end up saying, I'm taking a big risk here and maybe not for any benefit because I see the guys that come in. And it's like, I did this weighted ball program. I did this weighted ball program for two years. I didn't get any velocity. And I've seen guys that said, you know, I threw five miles an hour faster, but now I'm, you know, getting Tommy John surgery or now I've got a torn labrum. So I see those guys clinically. My first thought is, okay, let's get you as strong as we can. Let's recover 
the range of motion that you've lost over the years of throwing or just never really had. Maybe you don't have good hamstring length. Maybe you don't have good shoulder internal rotation. Let's get you stronger. And then let's also, let's address the way that you throw because those are sometimes the things that can not only lead to better performance in the short term, but more velocity and things long-term with better health as well. And then if we get to the point, and I like, I like the metric you're saying because I'm not very familiar with it, um, which is, hey, if, you can, if you're in this group here where you're in this ratio, maybe this is something we can implement. And if you're in this, in this ratio, you, know, you probably need more of A, B, and C as, as compared to this, uh, this specific weighted ball throwing. Program. Yeah, man, it's, it's always a dance. You know, we, we have our throwing specific work, we have our training work, you know, and what happens is, okay, if, if strength's going down, you know, if this is my throwing specific workload, this doesn't make sense, right? This doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm, I'm altering my hands for people, you know, um, who, who, are, <laughs> who are not watching this podcast, but if my workload's going up, my hand's raising and, you know, my throwing strength, my arm strength, throwing arm strength is going down. I'm starting to create a bigger gap. And what happens is there's this trade-off, you know, and what I, what I said, we, we actually took athletes out of competition when they, you know, were, were severely weak. When we're seeing signs of weakness in season, we're like, okay, we have this data. We got to do something with it. We can't just keep collecting it, wait for an injury and be like, oh, if athletes have X, Y, Z, um, you know, we should be taken out. It's like, we got to act now. We took them out of competition. The kids didn't like it. And what level were these? Yeah, my, at, at the minor league level, major league level. So I think that's important for the, the guys at home that are listening that are athletes. So they think they never want to come out of a, you know, a JV baseball game or a varsity baseball game. And these are professional athletes that, hey, they're not hitting these metrics and they're saying, they, they, yeah, they weren't, they weren't happy at the beginning, but we explained to them why. You know, they, the athletes need to know why. We had this process of what, why, and how. You know, what are we seeing in your data? Why is this important to you that we improve it? How are we going to do it? And usually we take an athlete out for 10 to 14 days. And um, yeah, at the, at the beginning it was tough, but our GM at the time, he said something to me that it was like, it just resonated. And, and it, it was like the guiding principle for me of the program. He said, Ryan, um, you know, it's like, do you want the do you want the pain of sacrifice or the pain of disappointment? You know, and that was the pain point. He also said, um, he, he also said something to me one time, like pay now or pay later. And those things kind of were in my mind. It's like, okay, there's a little bit of pain. You're going to be discomfort in a little bit of psychological turmoil for not pitching, even though you're not injured and you're not feeling pain, but neurologically you're messed up. You know, there's something going on. I obviously wouldn't tell an athlete to mess up, but neurologically, we need to improve you, you know? And um, so so we need to pay now. We need to do this now because we want you to come back in the season. I will tell you, in like 95% of the athletes we put on that program, they came back and catapulted their performance. They needed the rest. It might have just been the recovery, maybe not just the training, but – we knew that continuum of throwing workload and strength demands. If they, if that pendulum starts swinging, it's like we're increasing the throwing workload and the strength just keeps going down. It's, it's a recipe for disaster. You know, it is, um, and we need to act on it. 
and, and our coaches that are out there, I just kind of wanted to relate a study to this kind of this concept of why strength matters most. But there was a study that was put out by Kyle Matzel, physical therapist at the University of Evansville and a group um, of people. And they found that the coaches, they felt that they're responsible for this health, you know, for their athletes. But only 6% believed that strength was a contributing factor to injury. And there's sort of like 600 coaches and the coaches were highly educated coaches. And they, they you know, and it, it just blew my mind that we don't know as a society, unfortunately, right now, that's how strength is so important. And yet the athletes, even the course of the off season, the, the throwing programs escalate in demand. But we don't know if strength's matching it. So, for instance, if I had this strength device, which we offer at armcare.com, and people can, you know, their players can be remote, they can do it anywhere, you can say, hey, this is going in the wrong direction. I'm giving the athlete more demand, and their strength levels are reducing. I need to pivot my throwing program with them to balance them back so that we can expose them to the right stimulus and training and lessen the stimulus of throwing so that when they get to the preseason, you know, they're going to spring training, they're much healthier. And in pro baseball, probably the same in youth level baseball and adolescent baseball and college baseball potentially as well, is that the beginning of the season is your highest risk area, you know, for, for all of our athletes. And it happens because potentially in the off season, our throwing workloads become, you know, more acute, and our strength uh, for our arm, our specific strength for our throwing arm may be going down, but we can only evaluate that with technology, you know, and getting it in the hands of someone like yourself, you know, um, who has what I call like, you can, you see, feel, and now you have test. You have those things together. I mean, for the coaches that have all those, those qualities out there, no doubt they're going to have even more success. And we're trying to get, you know, as we go along, we're going to have people like you who definitely have a greater skill set on the clinical side and people like me to hopefully be involved in our, in our company in some way or, you know, the education that we provide to teach coaches. And you're putting all this content out as well in, in terms of how to have this, this C, C component and this feel component so they can put all these pieces together. And I think when we get there, man, I think baseball is going to be such a healthier place. I got two boys and uh, they're in my mind all the time when I, when I do my work and, you know, if they want to pitch, you know, I feel like I, I'm, I'm driven to, to not only help them perform, but to be on the field, you know, everybody gets wild over certain metrics in baseball. You know, there's so many for pitching, you know, even looking at break charts and, and how balls are moving and, you know, how they're able to induce chase rates with pitchers or hitters and miss rates and all those things. But, we're forgetting that innings pitched is the most important measure. None of the other ones matter unless we can keep our athletes gaining innings pitch, gaining experience. And uh, I'm excited for it. I'm excited for it. I'm excited for, for people like you to use this product and, uh, and really drive home how we can make baseball a safer place. What you've come up with and – your thought process behind it and your continued evolution of this is something to commend. And I invite everybody to go to armcare.com, check it out. Where can we find you online? Yeah, the easiest place. Um, I, I'm really active on LinkedIn now. I, I was in a shell for a while. <laughs> I really wasn't involved in any form of social media. And 
Um, I, I think LinkedIn's the best way, you know, they can connect with me and, you know, ask questions. And, uh, I look forward to meeting anybody with, you know, with whatever question they might have and uh, get to learn, you know, their skills and, and what they're doing with their athletes. So it's the best place for me. LinkedIn is an awesome platform. You guys, if you want to follow Ryan, actually, there's a awesome there's really an i think it's an awesome social media platform now a lot of people don't know that for posting videos articles all of that stuff ryan's very active on there that's i believe how we've connected in the past um so definitely uh follow follow dr ryan croton or croton on um linkedin and check out armcare.com he's also got some great youtube videos that are very um uh, educational uh i believe that's arm care is that arm care yeah. is the YouTube? yep arm care yeah okay Check those out as well. Thank you very much for coming on, Doc. And uh, this was this was awesome. This was fun. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it.